Kira, uh, and welcome to an occasional uh, Mimia podcast discussion uh, with people doing amazing uh, technology and innovation work here in Aotearoa. Uh, my name is Ben Reid. Um, I'm the author of the weekly Mimia newsletter covering emerging tech, new ideas, and uh, thinking about the future. You can subscribe for free at httpsmimia.substack.com. Um, today, I'm joined by Rachel Kelly, a biotech entrepreneur and co-CEO who's working to reimagine the future of health and bio-augmented bio intelligence based in the Waikato in Aotearoa. Rachel, kia ora. Hi, lovely to be here with you. Great. Um, look, before we start, I thought I'd just run through your bio um, so people sort of can get to know you a little bit. So you're an ex-scientist, a strategist, uh, a high-tech product developer and commercialization professional. Um, you spent the last 20 years in science and technology, um, including nine years in California, uh, working in biotech and high-tech manufacturing. Um, and then returning to New Zealand in 2014. Rachel's worked with uh, award-winning and innovative tech startups, including Cohired and Nyriad. Uh, she led Gallagher's Enterprise Security Division um, as Chief Product Officer and currently co-owner of Tailored Health and Performance, which is a holistic science-backed health hub um, and co-CEO of a new biotech startup, which I'm really quite excited to talk about today, Tailored Technologies. Yeah, well, um, firstly, it's it's delightful to be here with you, Ben. So I know our paths have definitely crossed multiple yeah. times throughout the last six or seven seven years. So it's lovely to join you here on this on this podcast today. You've worked in California, right at the you know the forefront of you know global biotech, and and you're sort of back you know here in Aotearoa, New Zealand now, you know, building your own biotech startup. Um, you know, what what are the sort of key steps along the way, um, and the key sort of I guess episodes that have sort of brought you to where you are right now? answering your question around the academic background and I guess the the journey that led me um, partly to where I am today uh, you know I have a bachelor's of science in biochemistry advanced biochemistry um, as well as a master's in chemistry specializing in forensic toxicology so I did a lot of work in analytical chemistry um, and then that led me to work at a, at a pharmaceutical generic pharmaceutical company for about a year um, in quality control and formulation so I was working a lot with um, generic pharmaceuticals uh, punching buttons on big systems, whether it be HPLC, mass specs, or LC mass specs. Um, for those who are familiar with separation yeah. technologies, uh, though you'd understand all those acronyms. Um, I, 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 I mean, so I'm just a software guy um, and, <laughs> and strategy, right? So, so it's all, so an LC. Yeah, so liquid chromatography. So right. there's a whole there's a whole area of life science and separation science, which is, is it's a very niche area, and it's really um, commanding. Um, the type of science that's required to separate and analyze complex mixtures. So it could be a, a soil sample. It could be from a wastewater outlet. It could be your blood. It could be your know, baby's first stool, which is called meconium. Either way, when you send stuff out to a lab, they'll usually yep. use some type of separation science, a big instrument like uh, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry or gas chromatography mass spectrometry or um, high-performance liquid chromatography just by itself, which is a, a the more um, expanded version of LC or GC is, is gas. Um, right. I should say lots of lovely acronyms like any <laughs> industry. Yeah. But um, yeah, I specialized in, in a lot of that um, very early on as a scientist in the lab. And um, what I what I craved um, in those moments wearing white coats and, and, and playing with drug formulas was the interaction with people and what, what that all meant. And so I was very um, fortunate, however you want to put it, lucky, hard worker, but I was able to find um, or meet along my way a, a person who was the managing director of a liquid um, chromatography or a, a separation science company called Phenomenex. Yeah. And um, they are based in California. Uh, long story short, ended up 
going over there and working in their sales department, um, technical sales, interfacing yep. directly with scientists in labs like yep. Merck, Hoffman LaRoche, um, Jude, St. You know, Jude's um, research, research Hospital, Stanford, places like that. And basically consulted with other scientists in the lab like I was myself to use the right type of separation science or chemistries to get the outcomes they're looking for. So I was there in California for nine years. Um, bizarrely enough, I was interviewed by um, Sunny Balwani from Theranos at some point. I was flown up really? to Cisco's. That was an Gosh, interesting yeah. experience with, um, with Theranos. Yeah, um, that's right. That's just going through the courts right now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's, a, there's a really good podcast series on it. Um, I don't know if anyone's, if you've listened to that or... It's a wandering, I think, put it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I'll have to check that out. But yeah, it's bizarre yeah. watching the, the Netflix documentary and the movie because I, re- I recognized when they were walking down the corridor, I was like, that's where I was interviewed. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was quite an experience as well. And yep. then um, came back to New Zealand uh, about seven years ago. Uh, initially had a, a variety of job offers in Auckland and um, settled into the Waikato, which is where I'm from and where my, my family right. is. And my two young children at the time, that was six and three, six, sorry, right. six months and three. They've just been involved with a variety of, of tech yeah. startups since then and obviously developing products in the tech space. Now you're sort of basically co-CEO of a technology startup. Um, and that's sort of really what we're, you know, we're going to focus on today. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in, you know, obviously some of the technologies that you're, you know, that you're tracking, that you're developing, and then the solutions that you're building up across that, and then, you know, the value and the purpose um, of, of the startup. So, you know, just give us a, maybe you can, you can give us a quick uh, overview of Tailored Health um, yeah. and Tailored Technologies now. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, the interesting story when I was Chief Product Officer at Gallagher Security is that I actually interfaced or, or um, reached out to Tailored Health and Performance, um, the CEO there, uh, Luke Taylor, and um, I essentially said I've, I've negotiated a health stipend with, with my package and I, I challenge you or my hypothesis to you is that you can make me the best version of myself as a leader because I had you know, a really big vision for the, for the organization. Um, you know, the product house is often the engine room for many of these, these companies, particularly a hmm. um, company. And so I just, I wanted to be the best version of myself around you know, a high cognitive level, high endurance um, you know, high ability to, to be my best version, be patient, you know, be able to think on my toes, have the, 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 the stamina to keep up with all of the, the multitudes of, of threads we were pulling as a, as a product team. And so as a part of that, um, there was this entire program that we created. It was an executive program and it was really to try to, again, unlock my potential as not only a, a woman, a mother, but also a technology leader. And so what amounted was literally books. We did a whole bunch of clinical diagnostics. This book is filled with my genetics. It's filled with wow. skills. Um, all these other um, you know, actual quantified measurements um, and along with certain um, you know, technology diagnostic tools like the yeah. Aura Ring. It's an Aura Ring, yeah. yeah. yeah and I've, got, I've, I've got, got my wristband on. Oh, I, you do? I've got BioStrap there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Their ethos is coming out in the next couple of months. We're excited right. to trial that. <laughs> and, of course, Apple Watch. Name yep. all the, the IoT wearables. Um, but at the end of the day, we got all this data and um, with their large number of specialists they have in-house, um, we were able to start to deconstruct what did it all mean and how yeah. do, I, do I make small changes in my, the way that I, I think, live, eat, move to essentially get 
all of the engines of my body working in this beautifully seamless, smooth way so I could become the best version of myself. And throughout that, that period, we were able to prove a whole bunch of things, which again, pertain to my ability to have cognitive um, you know, capacity and all these other things that I, that I, that I mentioned earlier. And um, as we were developing the program, because I worked with them to develop a program, um, which now other um, New Zealand executives do use, we decided that we wanted to spin off the R&D part of tailored health performance into tailored technologies. Yep. And the, the core purpose, and we, we have a 500-year vision, um, around a 15-year business plan. And, and a, right. Yeah, well, again, you, you can only plan ahead so far based on where the winds change. But again, it's nice to have some type of stepstone plan. And then a, a more imminent two-year project called Project Otto and the purpose of that is to take the scale that we did with myself and a few other executives in New Zealand and expand that out to 230 people globally. So can we get some of um, the world's leaders um, in various you know, companies, whether it be public or private? Can we get either ex-pro athletes or current athletes um, and you know, potentially expand that out to more indigenous cultures? And follow these 230 people over the course of two years with a variety of wearable diagnostic, oh, sorry, wearable devices, IoT devices, as well as clinical at-home diagnostics to start to map out the framework of the human body and all of the engines that are most important to give all those you know, cognitive and health benefits into the digital world. Yep. And the, the digital twin that we're crafting, the purpose is to not only understand all this data. So when we get this whole book of information, if we go on our app and have like five different wearables that we're trying to make sense of, that it brings it all together and starts to actually give more context to what it all means. And then equally for busy professionals, how do you make small daily changes to your life to get you into a different trajectory to your overall health and well-being so the purpose of auto is to be able to create the framework get the contextualization engine running and then start making recommendations to people um, through that auto interface on their, their mobile app to become the best versions of themselves so so you know let's just decon de deconstruct some of that because there's, a, there's a, a hell of a lot in there um, you've obviously got your sort of book there um, of the diagnostics that you did over over a year and, and probably a bit more um, what, yeah, this, this is a space that's moving really, really quickly, right? So what are, you know, the, the key, I guess, biomarkers? And when you talk about the best version of, you know, of oneself, is this your epigenetic clock, for example, you were talking about athletes. So is it around athletic performance, sustainability? So how do you basically build a model that brings together all of those potential outcomes and then those potential inputs? You just nailed the purpose of what we're trying to do. Right, so okay. Um, the interesting part and what we hear from a lot of our global partners, we're partnering with a number of not only diagnostic laboratories, but also wearable companies, um, some of which we've already mentioned. Um, but what's, what's interesting as a part of that is understanding they're very good at a vertical lane. So if we look at the vertical lane of the biomarkers or biometrics that they specialize in or can capture, that's, those are really great little windows to look at. But when you're looking at overall health, you're really looking at the horizontal lane, slicing all of those verticals um, and saying, all right, what do all of the context of all of these, these little threads actually mean when it comes to a healthy, healthy life? Now, you mentioned athletes, which is interesting because while they may be highly performant, that doesn't mean that they're healthy. Mm. So that's firstly the, the just sort of gut test I, I want to I um, yeah. raise with you is that they're 
they're hedging their biology to be performant for a short period of time. Yeah. And that short period of time might be a two-year window where they're trying to compete in Wimbledon or trying to compete maybe three years um, within it with an Olympic Games, but at the expense of their health span, right? So, so there's a lot of interesting ways to cut all this and reflect upon what is health and well-being. So, so you've used that word health span um, and you know, just just define, I guess, what you mean, what you mean, you know, by that. Yeah, uh, that word. So we often talk about lifespan, which yeah. is obviously how long you are alive. What we mean by health span is how long you are healthy and alive. So you know, we are seeing with with the advent of advanced you know, um, pharmaceuticals and things like that and other biohacking techniques and improved lifespan. So we're living longer for the most part, but that means we're also in some parts dying longer. So we're, we're suffering from neurodegenerative diseases or some type of um, erosive age disease, which is mm. affecting our ability to live a, 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 you know, a long, healthy or a, a healthy contributing life. You know, and, and I've seen, I mean, we, we, we can talk about um, some of the leaders in this space, you know, later on. I, um, I certainly read, you know, a bunch of work by um, David Sinclair, who's a, a professor in, in the States, Australian, actually, originally. Um, but, you know, we, biologically, if you go back to the Ice Age, you know, most people would have been lucky to get beyond 30, right? Um, correct. As it, and, and so now, you know, we've got... It feels to me there's an accelerating curve of, long, of longevity and health span as well that's sort of going to continue to rocket up past um, way past 100. You know, so and and I've heard you know anecdotal things said that you know the first um, you know immortals are already in their 60s. Um, so anecdotally, you know, so whether there's any you can't really prove that. It's not a falsifiable <laughs> statement right now, but um, the uh, yeah, so. What, how, how long could a human live? You know, what's the evidence on that? Is, is it finite or is, is there, could you actually potentially just, you know, take yourself in for maintenance every 10 years and, or in real time? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that in itself is its own podcast, Ben. Right. Um, and as yeah. you know, with Dr. Sinclair, you know, there are many of these podcasts talking about the, the latest and greatest in um, your biological age assessment um, and the types of, uh, I guess, uh, small molecules that you can expose yourself to or activities to prolong um, lifespan or health span. Uh, we used to look at longevity or biological age through things like telomeres. So we used to be able to think, actually, depending on the length of these little um, chains of repeating units at the end of you know, genetic material would define how long you would live. Now, there's um, some research and growing evidence that suggests that that's actually not that accurate. And there is more work and some interesting discoveries around the Horvath clock, which yep. um, for the most part is considered the current gold standard. But there are many people in the field that disagree with its ability to um, quantitatively measure whether or not that's truly your biological age mm. versus the, the chronolo chronological age that yep. you, the number of years you've been alive. And Dr. Sinclair, I mean, they're doing some pretty interesting things at the moment. Um, I know we're awaiting uh, a launch of a new product or testing protocol, which is around the Horvath clock or something different um, from Dr. Sinclair's lab. So uh, I think at the end of the day, this is a very interesting conversation and requires, I think, more literacy around the, the point. So I encourage people to Google it because there's lots of different perspectives to, to what is actually the quantified measure of biological yeah. age. So I've seen... You know, people tweeting out that you know they've they've taken five years off their 
um, biological age, you know, just from improving lifestyle. I mean, Brian Johnson uh, is a guy that I, I follow quite a lot. He's the, um, uh, so he's a multimillionaire, exited his finance fintech company, you know, 10 years ago and um, has basically poured, from what I can tell, the entire, uh, his entire sort of 400 million US uh, fortune into developing kernel, which is um, going up against Neuralink, which is a, a non-invasive um, brain scanning uh, apparatus. And as part of that, he's, you know, using himself as a bit of a guinea pig. And he says is that, you know, it's all about nudges. Um, so they've built a model whereby he doesn't actually have to remember to eat at a particular time of day or, or you know, or to, um, you know, focus on the best time, the amount of sleep that you need to get and, and so on. So he's basically almost created a second limbic system, if you like, to remember all this stuff and to um, do this stuff automatically mm. to optimize, you know, his health. Yeah. Um, and it sounds, which sounds similar to what, you know, you're, you're looking at with Project Auto, right? This is a system where you can actually become, improve your wellness, improve your health span sub- unconsciously. Mm. Yeah, because that's, that's the problem, right? Is you, yeah, it is. At the moment, it just takes such a lot of cognitive real. Yeah. <laughs> we're all we've got so much information coming at us that it, it creates real decision fatigue around what to do and you know with with being my business partner being in the the actual health commercial commercialization space or mm. to interfacing with people in their health practices for the last 10 years has seen that you know, everybody knows what to do and there, there are the right. basics that we should all yeah. be doing which we don't necessarily do them um, but things like you know sleep Getting an yeah. adequate sleep and ensuring that you, you know, you're actually sleeping during the time where your glymphatic system is at its peak, which is obviously clearing out the, the, the amyloid plaques, tau proteins and things like that, which is the rubbish collection system for your brain, which is saying between the hours of 11 and one is actually the, the, the sort of the sweet spot when the glymphatic system is working. And so right. there's lots of different um, interesting uh, information that we're learning about our bodies and from a circadian rhythm what is actually involved with with the body's functionality um so again we know what we're supposed to do we yeah. haven't always understood why we should do them so why we should go to bed at 9 30 and get a good nine eight nine hours sleep um but we are starting to better understand why it's important to get that sleep and why each of those stages are are, are really critical for certain bioprocesses which are the natural sort of expectation for improving longevity yep. you're actually enabling those, those normal bioprocesses to function the way they're supposed to and and what have been in the past before we had the advent of you know light switches artificial light yeah that are affecting our circadian rhythms for example yeah and and just on that on the question of sleep then so you know since i started using this this um, strap and the app on that sort of gives me really granular detail on you know the the number of disturbances that you, you know number of times you wake up in the night the mm-hmm. and then your phases of deep sleep REM, REM sleep light sleep you could you know just because this is such an indicator of health span what are what are the differences between those and you know how can you optimize for better sleep mm-hmm. um, yeah so you, you usually have about a 90 minute sleep cycle so um through the course of your night you've got 90 minutes in which your body goes through various sleep stages now, for the most part, the front end of your sleep around 11 to, to 1, as I mentioned, is uh, predominantly deep sleep. So that's where, as I mentioned, your glymphatic system is at its peak. It's kind of like the lymphatic system and the fact that it's uh, a network of um, sort of uh, fluidic 
processes or bioprocesses that help to clear out those amyloid plaques and tau proteins, which historically have been recognized as accumulating in things like Alzheimer's disease. So we know there's definitely a process of biodegradation and then aging of the brain if you don't get the chance to really have a good glymphatic um, moment, so to speak. So the front part of your sleep is usually heavy and deep sleep, which is when glymphatic system works. The latter part or in the morning is where you get the more of the REM sleep, which is where you start, that, that's the emotional and the memory sifting and reset. So mm. oftentimes when you wake up really early, um, particularly between the hours of like three to five, depending on again, your chronotype, for example, um, yep. you might find that you're really emotionally vulnerable that day because your body just hasn't had the, the chance to have the limbic, limbic system, which is the emotional part of your brain or the part that, that processes emotion. Oh, I was, when I said limbic earlier, there was the one below that, the reptilian, reptilian yeah. system. Well, yeah, you've yeah, got the yeah. reticular activating system, yeah. right, as well, which is a part of recognition and memory and, and filtering of all the data that you see in, in, in your life. Um, again, we can get geeky really fast about this stuff. I, I, I mean, I, I love this. I'm, I'm Jeff Hawkins uh, with New Mentor is just one of my heroes. The, you know, he's focused on the neocortex, but um, his, you know, to help one understand the architecture of a brain um, mm. and, you know, and really just how so much goes on sub, subconsciously, oh. just that you're not aware of. Which I, but that's actually sort of 90% of the iceberg of what is that, you know, um, how you're actually feeling and, and, and perceiving and, the world. And yeah. also the diagnostic tools that can accurately measure. So there is a lot of debate and understandable in the industry around whether the things like Whoop or Biostrap or Aura can accurately diagnose when you are in non-REM yeah. or REM sleep, for example. And this is funnily enough, and I think we should talk yeah. about this, we're actually just being sent. So as a part of Project Auto, we're working with a lot of really great um, wearable companies that are right. sending their um, their, do- their devices for us to test to mm-hmm. uh, as a shortlisting process to include in, in Project Auto. Um, we've yep. had the, the Muse for a while. So the Muse S is more of a fabric-based headband yep. um, in which um, is pretty good at, at looking at the brain waves because that's really the only way for you to measure REM, non-REM type sleep. Yeah. We just received the Dream 3, which is actually more of a clinical tool um, for sleep. So a lot of sleep clinics will use the Dream 3 or, or precursors because mm. it's just that much more accurate when it comes to um, actual recognizing different brainwave types. Right. And the reality is, is these devices, this one particularly, is far more accurate at measuring your REM and deep sleep than any of the wearables. And that's just the nature yeah. of but but again, they, they do a little bit of inference elements as well as if it detects twitching, right, which is classic of, of REM type sleep. Um, and that's another way. We're also okay. testing a thing called um, it's a sleep mat from Withing. So they're, they're sending us a whole bunch of their devices to test for Project Auto as well. Um, but that's another mat you put underneath your or on your mattress that detects um, all sorts of things, including snoring, sleep apnea, obviously disturbances of, of, of sleep patterns and helps to feed into an understanding of what goes on when you sleep. It's that classic sort of the future's already here, just unevenly distributed, right? When you bring a sort of brain monitoring device, you know, as a consumer device that you that effectively just feeds into, you know, the Project Auto app on one's phone, I'm guessing, um, you know, and from that you build up layers of um, analytics. So, so maybe we, let's just go, you know, more towards that data end then. So, you know, you've got sort of 230 participants in, in, you know, the next stage of your project, Otto. How do you basically take the data that you're collecting as part of this and then 
build a model that that mm. is then scalable up to you know a bigger audience. Yeah. So we've already with the N equals two. So we've run all these things with myself and my business partner for the last eighteen months. Yeah. So we've been able to form um, basically there a rudimentary algorithm sets that starts to bring in all of the data and what it means based on time. So the interesting part of that is is extending this out to two hundred and thirty participants, which again it's a you got to pay to be on the the, the project yeah. mode. and effectively. Again, whether we want to talk about the ethics or not, we're considering this, you know, we're giving you an unfair advantage for two years before it goes to the broader population. But it's really starting the question or the hypothesis. Uh, there are three hypotheses, right? The first, is there a minimum viable truth? So with all of these diagnostics, all of these wearables, everything mm. possibly collect about ourselves. Is there a minimum number of biomarkers or biometric threads that can actually give us the truth around what's going on in the body at any particular time? So that's hypothesis number one. Hypothesis number two is, can we use you know, digital twin frameworks, which already exist for infrastructure, to be able to map those unique bio engines um, that we've defined as minimum viable truth that feed the engine into some type of simulation engine, which is a digital twin? And then figure out what the squeaks are. So where is it squeaky? Where is it not working? Where do we need to grease it? And then hypothesis number three is, can we use some of the most you know, advanced kind of behavioral psychology, um, neuroanthropology and cultural architecture, stealing words from Jamie Wheel here, um, to be able to nudge people into the right direction. And all we're mm. looking for is simple daily nudges that they can make that changes their trajectory by one degree. Because at the end of the day, if we're looking at health span or where they're headed as a part of their life and how it works, we're only looking to change it by one degree because over time it will make a big difference to where they actually arrive. And when you say a big difference, I mean, yeah, do you, do you sense that the, the prize here is, an, is another 20 years of health span? 50? Are we going to be 100? Yeah, so, so as, as a Gen Xer, you know, should I expect to be 100, 120, 150? You know, if I, well, if I look after myself well. What they're talking about now, and this statement always gets me. When I first heard it, I was so confused. But essentially, for every two weeks you're alive, yeah. you gain years of your life. Let that like filter in a little bit. Because <laughs> what that means is that for every two weeks we stay alive, there's advances in science yes. that increases our lifespan. And there's a lot of interesting work in stem cell research. I mean, I know that, that you know, we're, we're seeing changes with Jeff Bezos and, you know, what he's doing and where he's putting investment into to stem cell research and other bits and pieces, as well as the work that Dr. Sinclair is doing within yep. his lab and, you know, finding that, that holy grail that rewinds the clock of cells into a stem cell nature. So that, I mean, he's able to, to work on these mice models that reverse engineers their yeah. lives, which is which is just crazy. Or reverse it is, a, it is amazing. Yeah, he talks about the sort of DVD polishing yeah. machine or something. Yeah. Which, yeah. which again, to his point, he says you can rewind a bit too far. <laughs> which you know, I, I loved reading mm. that book around how he was reflecting upon some of the philosophical elements of you know becoming neonatal with your cells and completely yeah. unspecified and then dying that way. Mm. So. Long story short, and to answer your question, hmm. I think, again, the longer we are alive and the more people are looking at the various avenues that we could utilize, CRISPR, yep. I'm going to mention CRISPR as one of yeah, them. We'll go into some of the tech in a minute. That in yeah. itself, I feel very strongly about how we use that, but um, we are on the right trajectory to improve health span 
sorry, lifespan. But my question is whether the health span will improve as well. And you, you asked before, you know, what are we looking at when it comes to whole health and mm. tailored health performance and tailored tech? We have a four pillar health philosophy where it's basically your know, true health is how you think, how you live, how you eat, how you move. And in that order, yep. you can crush yourself at F45 or body fit training and then break yourself, right? With just movement yep. um, and basically set a course of events around ongoing injury um, or if you're a boxer or if you have head injuries or concussions, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you might really have some issues with neurology later. So you, you've kind of got to layer on how are we bringing not only the acute and the chronic kind of treatment, but also how are we ensuring that we're doing the right things for the right reasons and yep. we're not pushing ourselves too far because we're doing it at the expense of something else, like how we, how we think, because if we're broken, Obviously, we can get into a really depressive and anxious state, or you might live in a way that, you know, if you're broken, you've broken your body, you're, you're not active, you know, you, you can't get out and do things, and that's yeah. obviously going to affect your health span. It's, it's an amazing time that we live in, and maybe we're, we can come back to some of the social, you know, the implications for society of, mm. of us all living much, much longer. Um, so, yeah, look, you, you talked about CRISPR. We've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, epigenetic clocks um as a as a means of measurement you know genetic editing uh with, with CRISPR, this is a, you know, an incredible technology that's really still just in its early stages of application um you know we, we've seen just the, the amazing advances in you know machine learning as applied to uh protein folding you know alpha the, the fold yeah alpha fold uh yeah. and alpha fold two as well right the, yeah. the, the sort of uh had an order of magnitude better performance you know within a year um and then you know, so, so you, the, but and also uh, with the vaccines that we that we've seen, so the mRNA uh, uh, advances that led to development of a vaccine within mm-hmm. um, you know months of, of the pandemic breaking out. Um, so all of these, you know, microbiology um, and, and genetic sort of technologies. So let's just talk through some of those, and then and you lead the conversation from there as to you know what else are you watching? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are some of the big paradigms that you know, are on the horizon that, that, you know, could take this to another level all over again. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I can't kind of share some of the categories that we're looking at, because as you imagine, mm. uh, there's a bit of IP around the, the real hard stuff of what we're trying to craft. Yep. And um, so the biological engines and the categories that we're looking to deconstruct and then assess as a framework set to, to understand squeakiness, so to speak. Um, but I can kind of articulate some of the, the, the core areas that um, are of interest. Mm. And you nailed um, AlphaFold 2, right? Mm. So the interesting part, if you break down all life, any kind of carbon, carbon-based life form, is the, the, the simplest of, of molecule that we can at least influence easily, which is the atom or, or the element. Yeah. And when we look at carbon-based life, life forms, we're predominantly carbon oxygen, hydrogen, like that's, mm. that's generally the, the ubiquity of, of the elements that, that form us with, with nitrogen there as well. Um, and the interesting part comes down to is, is vibrational interactions, right? Mm. And, and um, the, the, the presence or absence of water, mm. right? That 
either support those interactions or are inhibitory because it doesn't exist. Yep. There's this interesting thing around um, hydration and, and water and its ability to promote interactions that form basic life. And so there's some interesting stuff around, again, activation energies um, of, of water, basic physics when it comes to vibrational um, energy interactions between certain bonds, for example, um, which hasn't been really mainstream, but is a really interesting area of understanding, particularly when we start getting to quantum physics <laughs> and entanglement, which again is going to a slightly lower level to the to, to right. cell. So without getting into more detail, there's some a lot of inquiry into yeah. how do we define um, activation energies, vibrational energies, uh, fluidity of um, carbon-based molecules and, and organic chemistry. There's a lot of interesting things coming out around the, the impact of dehydration on, right. on um, life forms and, yeah. and interactions. So that's one kind of area which seems very simple, but is incredibly complex. Mm. Um, you obviously talked about you know, CRISPR and what gene editing um, means. Um, it's also looking at you know, uh, vi viral elements to that. Uh, and what they can do over time to to insert their own DNA into cellular, um, native or endogenous cellular um, structures. Um, but there's there's also looking at the the uh, the virome. So uh, weirdly enough, in the in the gut axis, we talk a lot about the microbiome, but what we don't talk about is the microbiome. Also, virome, virome. Um, and it's really, the biome is about the bacteria that symbiotically or parasitically live in our, our gut, which again is theoretically an external part of our bodies. Because if you think about it, theoretically, if your body works well, it's a semi-permeous kind of pipe that goes in, absorbs the things that it shouldn't, excretes the things that it, sh you know, that should not ingest or, or absorb, and then you're done, right? But in the, in the um, gut, there's an enormous community of, of bacteria and we already know and we're getting more and more discussions about gut health which is fascinating but yep. we only talk about the the bacteria but what we don't talk about is the viruses that actually live in the gut and there there could be viruses from avocado or red bell pepper or things that aren't actually viruses that in, interact with us as a species but might be other species but they impact the ability or the microsphere or the microcosm of the actual gut by how they interact with bacteria, whether they're bacteriophages or viruses that um, lice or kill bacteria, or if um, they use the bacteria for you know, an actual um, repli replicating kind of mechanism. But mm. uh, again, without getting into too much detail, there's the, the virome is such a fascinating area of science, which isn't really being discussed and vastly under-researched. Under but there's a lot of interesting things in there around you know, <laughs> longevity and health and what that means for, for yeah. people day-to-day -day perspective. I mean, that, that, that brings up you know, the, the, the question you know, for, for you. Like you were talking about the information overload, but there's just so much work being done in this in the space you know or, yeah. and you know how do you keep across it um <laughs> uh well firstly we love what we do so hmm. um you know we listen to a lot of podcast um hosts yep. a lot of scientists in these fields um obviously utilize things like um you know rss feeds and things and just try to listen very intently yep. to what's what's coming out and then part of it is um, knowing enough to be able to pull in knowledge and insight from other 
orthogonal industries into the bio space. Mm. And so there's this, I think the, the, the Facebooks of the future or the Googles of the future when it comes to health tech are really going to be the ones that are able to, again, not only look at the vertical and, and specialize very deeply into a particular area, but it'll be the horizontal place. Let's go there, right? So what is the business model of a health business of the future, right? So we, we currently, you know, health spending is one of the you know, biggest public um, expenditure items, you know, of any government. And it's, you know, it is still very much much this sort of ambulance at the bottom of the cliff type really, of yeah. um, model. So, you know, we, we're obviously aware of, you know, the Apples of this world, the Googles of the world, Microsoft, you know, looking closely um, at this space and, you know, and you're out in front even from there. So what is the business model um, of, of a health, of a digital health business in, you know, 2030? Mm. I think the primary business model is it's very human centric designed. Like it's, it's all about um, enhancing body literacy and uh, being encouraging bio curiosity. I say bio curiosity very carefully because we're so busy trying to send spaceships into the upper atmosphere or to figure out how we're going to recolonize a different planet because quite frankly we can't figure out our own planet i don't think we've got any business going anywhere else without solving our own problems first but we fundamentally believe for us to be the 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 ancestors that we think we should be in the future we need to deeply understand ourselves and and the interesting journey in the 500 year vision that we have at tailored technologies and i'll paraphrase it it's really around accelerating the ability for organic and inorganic intelligence to work symbiotically to their fullest potential. Mm. And I say organic and inorganic intelligence very intentionally because obviously yep. organic intelligence is carbon-based life forms. Human plus AI, right? It is. Um, yeah. and, and I think there's this beautiful dance that we're missing the opportunity to talk about. And there are some really interesting people like Dr. Lex Friedman, who's talking a lot yeah. about interfacing with AI. This is and, fantastic and, podcasts. I mean, they, yeah. they go on for a long, long time, but yeah. They really, always, they really do. Always in depth, yeah. Dogs and Spot and robotics. But yeah. there's, this, there's this beautiful story that I think there's some pretty incredible people starting to tell. And I'd mm. like to think that at Tailored Tech, we're, we're telling it too, where... There is a future in which mm. we can become the best version of, the, of ourselves and become who we were born to be, both in the organic and inorganic yeah. fashion, but we do it together. Like that's really the only but, way we do it. So the best version, and I mean, this this aligns, um, you know, with, with a lot of sort of post, well, transhumanism as well, right? That, yeah. you know, the best version of myself is a cyborg. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all cyborgs anyway right now. So, you know, my memory is completely out of outsourced to you know various cloud providers i think the um that the brain computer interface stuff it promised a lot more and i think now that they've gone deeply into it the that ability to actually you know uh, interface directly into into a, a brain is many years off i mean the, the nexus trilogy if you've ever read that um you know talks about some nanotech that gets injected in you know into your bloodstream and just sort of attaches itself to neurons and then wirelessly connects to brains to brains to brains yeah. um you know that's just complete sci-fi right so you know from a nanotech point of view 
and you were talking about sort of you know CRISPR and viruses and so on, um, you know, at, at that level and even smaller. Um, you know, are there any major advances that you think we are just going to, you know, change the game mm. um, in our lifetimes, our I extended think, lifetimes? Yeah, I mean, I think quantum computing, as yeah. volatile as, as it is, mm. um, I think will become a pretty powerful tool for us to start to enable some of these highly complex, like, you know, million variate type of problems that we're experiencing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we could go on to say, you know, about the, the, the normal type of stem cell research, et cetera, et cetera, yep. that will be impactful. But I, I think what will be the most pivotal leap is more software in here. Yeah. Like the ability as a part of crafting and what I've found considering and being involved with, with companies that are building AIs, right? And rightly or wrongly, I talk about the AI placenta. So, so what is the placenta of the AI that we're crafting? What is the construct? Mm. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is the essence behind the placenta and how we're building it? But a lot of that puts you into a real stark face-to-face -face with self, right? Yeah. Like building the right type of AI is like putting a mirror up to yourself and saying, what are all of the pieces about being human and intelligence that are functional and transactional and helpful and what are emotional based based on trauma you know based on cultural lenses and morality and all these kind of soft areas that are are you know prickly and hard to put our fingers on and do you want and and do you want to just sort of erase some of those sort of slightly less the, the, you know the things you don't enjoy you know is that part of your cyber <laughs> future or is this something you want to put in a box and now the vanilla sky thing, right? Is, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the beauty of being human, right? So there's there's a, an enormous number of philosophical elements to this conversation. Mm. And the there's this wonderful quote, um, which I always massacre, and I need to put it up on my, my bathroom mirror, but I'll paraphrase. Um, with all this data that we're generating, we feel like we're becoming smarter. Um, and with all the technology that we have as a tool to be able to build and share and communicate, we think we become more powerful. But the problem is, is we're not becoming commiserately wiser about what to do with it, how to do with it, what's the right mm. thing to do with it, and why I, we're doing it. I, yeah, and I mean, it goes back to what I was I sort of was saying about sort of reptilian system and, you, you know, the whole of your subconscious, all of the activity that's going on in the brain. I mean, arguably this cyborg digital twin that we're that you know that you're uh, working towards that is um that's basically you know a life support system or, or a health span optimization system for my biological being that keeps my brain alive um you know arguably that just is another extension of the the signals that tell your heart to beat um or you know that regulate your hormones right and so is it is it any different to that um do you actually need wisdom or is that something you can just automate um, and forget. Yeah, well, I think the key thing here is here is you can have all this data about your mm. body and you can have all the simulations that can help to live your life hundreds of lifetimes over and find the, the, the shortest path to best outcome. Mm. Um, but there are no degrees of ones and zeros that can teach you how to interface together, like to interact to actually bring the joy, what, what, what is joy? What is happiness? Mm. What is the 
pursuit of happiness. That the beauty of optimizing or or trying to solve for the data overload and create mm. context and, and to reduce decision fatigue is that hopefully once you start to solve the problem where I'm in my optimal, I'm my optimal self, right? And, and if you've ever been really unhealthy and then really healthy, you start to think clearer. You start to think outside yourself more. You start to think past your own lifespan because it's like, actually, I'm on this planet to do something important or helpful. What does this mean for my children and my grandchildren? Hence why we have a 500-year 500, 500 vision. But when you get into your best self, when you, when you heal your trauma, your childhood trauma, when you, when you figure out your gut health, because remember around a third of all the small molecules running in your body right now are made by the bacteria and viruses mm. in your gut. So they're not even made by you, right? So you're at the whim of whatever the, the gut microbiome or, or virome you have. And so once you start to actually become the healthy version of yourself, and you're inherently in your essence, which again, sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's, it's your best version of genetic self. Mm. You actually start to think a bit clearer about what this all means. Yeah. You don't have the fog, the fluffiness that, you know, is just trying to survive the day. You start to actually become the better version of yourself. And the more people that ascend to that higher level of thinking and clarity, I'm hoping that the more people can start to solve the really important problems. So yeah. Mars is never needed. Look, that's, that's, um, that's, a, that's a really good uh, place to sort of land the conversation. Um, I did want to just go through, you know, a couple of um uh, areas that we just touched on um, earlier on, and so you, you know, you you talked about um, the equity and the, the di- I guess the diversity of your your sample set, and and you know how many of the seven billion plus people on the planet right now, who's going to get access to this te- this knowledge and this technology? Is is this a, a profit centered motive to you know in this sort of capitalist sort of hamster wheel that we that we exist within? Is it a um, you know, something to, for the for the better of humanity. You know, how does one make that decision as to who gets this and who doesn't and by when? Yeah, just like the Tesla model, we've got this really bold hypothesis, set of hypotheses, um, and 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 goal is it's going to be expensive to start. So you know, it, not everybody can buy a seat on Project Auto, much like this being a seat to to the upper atmosphere. This is a spaceship <laughs> into the cell. Right. Yeah. And, and in this work, honestly, that about 56% of the, the, the seat cost is all clinical diagnostics. It's, it's deeply understanding blue sky thinking, what are the biometrics biomarkers that create the minimum viable truth? Now, the point of this is to figure out the MVT. And once we figure out the blue sky thinking and figure out all the contextualized, all of these threads coming together, mm. the, the idea of this, again, first year is just listening to all these biometrics biomarkers from 230 people. The second year is starting to do small nudges and understanding context and more precision care. Um, but at the end of the two years, you know, we are developing Auto to be an app that is therefore available to the general public. Now, depending on what the general public want to do, so for example, hopefully we were able to figure out, again, minimum viable truth. So minimum number of wearables. Maybe you know, we work with some of our partners to create a, a, a version 2.0 of, the, of what, we, what we actually work with, yeah. with on, which is why they're wanting to partner with us because of what it might mean for them, is um, maybe we create a, a better wearable that tracks more of the minimum viable truth that makes it available for more for, for a broader audience and hopefully everyone. Um, and then looking at the clinical diagnostics, what are the, the you know, 
hundreds of thousands of small molecules and bacterial mRNA codes that we've got um, that gives us enough of a picture of a, a healthy you know, human twin reference engine or, or ability to feed the engine, the, the auto. And then at the end of that, how can we keep those clinical diagnostics affordable? Mm. If people can't do the diagnostics, at least can we give them enough information rolling back with just a wearable? So there's, there's a couple of steps we're, we're working on and there are sort of three tiers. So at the end of the two years, that's a, it's a $15 million US project. So at the end of that two years, you know, that we'll be able to offer it to the general public with wearables, like, like this or yep. like this. The second option is um, if you want to really unlock what this means, add this with the clinical diagnostics. And what are those clinical diagnostics? And then the, the last one is how are you partnering with doctors and you know, specialists where you start to look at more advanced inference elements around genetics? Like we're looking at 900,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. So 900,000 viable genes that we're going to get context from. Now, and we're only getting around 2,500 that we kind of know quite clearly what those genes do. But as we learn more, we can start to unravel more context to the remaining you know, SNPs at that point. But long story short, that's where you partner with the practitioners hmm. with more loose correlations or you know, very low R-squared values or you know, statistical relevancies. Um, where they can make more empowered decisions as trained practitioners to better care for their patients. And so we are looking at how this is made for everyone, that the technology loves everyone equally. But (laughs) but to start, we unfortunately have to do blue sky thinking and work with... And work with a small sort of yeah, exactly. uh, early early cohort. Um, hey, look, uh, Rachel, thank you so much for uh, spending the, the time with, with me this afternoon. Um, and uh, what, what I uh, just like say, basically, so if someone's interested in sort of joining, there's still some spots left on the, uh, the, the 230 cohort right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if someone's interested in finding out more about sort of tailored health, tailored technologies, Project Auto, um, they can go to your website. Projectauto.io. So right now it's a gated site. Um, you can contact us to give you your, de- your details. And so we can give you a unique access code. But essentially that experience is where you get to meet Otto, how Otto moves, how it talks, what it's doing, walk you through what the project is and, and what you can expect from it. Um, and then, of course, you can email us at hello at projectotto.io. Excellent. Uh, Rachel Kay, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure.